0: Good afternoon, you're listening to 90.7 FM, KALX. I'm Franklin, and welcome back to Perfect Rocks.
1: That's right, it's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. I'm Charles Lee. Coming
0: up on today's show, we'll be talking about current
1: developments in the world of science. In addition, we'll be joined by Stephen Schneider, who will talk about global warming. Also, we'll find out how a refrigerator works. So stay tuned for all this, plus the world-famous question of the week coming right up here on Berkeley Rocks
0: Welcome back to Berkeley Rocks. I'm Frank Ling.
1: and I guess that makes me Charles Lee again. Yes, indeed. How are you doing, Frank?
0: Uh, pretty good. Pretty good.
1: It's uh, another fine week here at the uh, Berkeley Rock Studio
0: and K A L X. And K
1: A L X having uh, a lot of fun.
0: Yeah, thanks for all those uh, all those generous donors we had yeah, last
1: week. Yeah, that was uh, that was really great. We 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 thank you for calling, especially during the show, which was uh, more more than we could have thought. We're, more of course. Yeah, we're we're happy. I mean. Really, that we had <laughs> listeners, I'm, I'm just surprised. <laughs> we, we do, yeah. Apparently, so thanks wow. for calling.
0: Thanks a lot, man.
1: Yeah, uh, so fundraiser was a success. Mm-hmm. There was a whole lot of shaking going on there, uh-huh. despite all the uh, the moon in the economy and all that. That's right. So certainly people are, are good, uh, but there's also some shaking going on in the globe.
0: In the globe, in What's the globe, shaking, man?
1: apparently things shaking around are earthquakes.
0: You know, we should ban plate tectonics.
1: <laughs> plate tectonics is bad. <laughs> Especially especially if you're living in an earthquake zone, um, you know,
0: there's the... The is like, what, a few hundred feet from here, Yeah, right? it
1: runs right through the, uh, the stadium there. <laughs> but apparently, so, these earthquakes apparently can trigger other earthquakes, which has been known for quite some time. Uh-huh. But people have been trying to determine, uh, actually, uh, some sort of predictive element to see how likely it is that an earthquake is going to trigger another earthquake right. in the same region. Right. Uh, so what's recently been done is a uh, group led by this fellow named Parsons has analyzed a number of earthquakes occurring after an earthquake that occurred in 1977, Mm -hmm. and he showed that uh, a number of these earthquakes actually could have been triggered by that first earthquake. What happens is, uh, it decays, the probability of actually being triggered by an earthquake decays exponentially. And it follows what's... As a function of time. As a function of time, yeah. So it follows what's known as a a law called Oromi's Law, Uh where the probability of earthquakes decreases as a function of time. Mm Uh, which is really good because now this, they can use this uh, method to assess uh, possible earthquakes uh, in different regions of the globe following a major earthquake somewhere.
0: But I thought usually when you have a major earthquake, it's relieving so much pressure that uh, the likelihood of other earthquakes happening is less. Right. right
1: well, in that same region, but, y- you know, the whole globe oh. is shifting. So okay. relieving pressure one way is probably putting some stress elsewhere. Right, right. It's, so it's more of an empirical thing. It doesn't really mm. get at the mechanisms, mm. but it's, it's really interesting.
0: Okay, and if anyone wants to know more about this...
1: Oh, if anyone wants to know a lot more about this, they can check out the Journal of the Geophysical Research uh, Society. Uh, it's volume 107. Shake it out, kids. Yeah, shake it and bake it.
0: So, Charles, do you think we'll ever go to war?
1: I I certainly hope not. It's a bad thing. We yeah, should do it. war sucks. Yeah, it's bad. <laughs>
0: Yeah, uh, all these arms experts are talking about the chemical and nuclear capabilities that Saddam Hussein
1: Yes, had. they are. Yes, they are.
0: And unfortunately, uh, most of them believe that he's probably hidden quite a, a large quantity of, say, VX and uh, sarin-related gases from uh, even before the Gulf War. Yeah. Uh, based on these analyses, even though there's no clear evidence, the U.S. government is making uh, a number of strategic moves, particularly moving uh, troops over to the... Iraq, in case there a war does erupt. Oh, okay. People worry that you know he could un- unleash these weapons right. once the war starts. The scariest ones are probably chemical and biological. They're worried that maybe he also has supplies to smallpox uh-huh. and uh, biological bar- weapons. Right. <coughs> Since those will be very easy to reproduce once you get hands on right. a couple samples. Well,
1: I mean, this has been a big worry for quite some time that he has all these uh, capabilities and yeah. people. You know, he's been stalling for all these things. So, what what are we trying to do about it? And
0: basically just worry about it <laughs>
1: <laughs> we've been doing that for a long time but yes. uh, action please action please
0: but uh not sure what the right action is right now. right,
1: right. It's, it's it's tough to say and uh it, it's funny you know i guess when uh, north korea also announced that they had nuclear capabilities right to treat them very differently which is <laughs> I, I think everyone's noticed this but uh, so we
0: knew it all along but they just finally admitted it right, right. but it's not like nothing earth-shaking it's not like you know war is impending or anything no
1: they didn't try and kill George Bush's dad so <laughs> that's why we're treating them differently but anyway yes anyway. so if you want to learn more about the possible uh, weapons capability of Saddam
0: uh, they can go to the September 14th issue of chemical and engineering News. a list of analysis is listed on page 41
1: Okay, and so what uh, hand do you write with? Uh,
0: the right one.
1: The right one. Not the wrong one. Uh, true. Well, so, you know, there's handedness in nature uh-huh. and handedness in molecules as well.
0: True. Uh, I believe all biological m- molecules are... Right-hander, or it's ha- based in on one of them.
1: Right. Well, I guess the uh, yeah, there there are different types of chirality, as they call them. Right. Uh, so people are trying to, I guess, obviously mimic nature mm-hmm. in terms of trying to design uh, chiral molecules. Right. As drugs. I'm sure you know very well. Right. And so people are trying to design, of course, chiral catalysts and these mm-hmm. kinds of things. Mm-hmm. So a number of people have been working on this in different regimes, and uh, a group led by Lee and others have uh, designed an organometallic triangle. In which three chiral binaphthol ligands bridge Ah, three binaphthol, binaphthol, yes, and these things bridge three platinum atoms Mm -hmm. uh, bearing some phosphine ligands, and so this creates a a, uh, handed structure in which there's uh, groups that are uh, reactive in the center, and they're handed, and they can catalyze a number of reactions. uh, Typically, they say to uh, greater than 90% stereospecific yields.
0: Cool, and this is coming to a. it Toys our Us pretty soon, right? We're, we're
1: hoping that it will be uh, in stores for Christmas where uh-huh. kids can uh, chirally react.
0: Chirally react. Yeah. That's what we need, man.
1: Right. So, brand new catalyst coming on the market, uh, uh, at least for, for chemists. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if you'll be able to go out to the uh, local store and buy this yet, but uh, it's really very cool. It should make uh, a lot of chemists happy. Right. So, this was reported in the Journal of the American Chemical Society. Jacks. Jacks. All
0: right, and finally, this one comes from the Ladies Home Journal. Oh,
1: the Ladies Home Journal.
0: <laughs> Don't you read that all the time, Charles? You know, I've
1: tried to get my papers in the Ladies Home Journal, but their peer review is just so darn tough.
0: <laughs> right, m- must be the feminists. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, in one of the ads, it mentions um, a machine called the Electron Water Air Machine.
1: The Electron Water Air Machine.
0: And it claims that um, by breaking bonds in water, it makes water cleaner because water <laughs> intrinsically spreads diseases and is bad for health okay <laughs> okay sure uh, no wonder you couldn't get your pet pe- paper right you know with today. that with that
1: kind of science going on especially in in prestigious journals like ladies home journal i <laughs> i just don't know
0: yeah we gotta try harder um,
1: right right just break those bonds i guess yeah <laughs> for those of you who who are wondering you can't break bonds in water at least not easily
0: no and it's not healthy i think boiling the person in wa- hot water is right, not
1: a good idea right well I, I guess you can actually break pods in water but not in the sense that they're talking about
0: <laughs> so and that's all for this week's look at current events in the world of science
1: you're listening to berkeley
0: Rocks here on 90.7 fm coming up a look at global warming with brian gerkey and our guest this week steve schneider so stay tuned From what was once an inarticulate mass of lifeless tissues, may I now present a cultured,
2: sophisticated man about
1: town. Hit it!
0: If you're blue and you don't know where to go to, why don't you go where fashion sits? Different types who wear a date coat, pants with stripes, or cut a weight coat, perfect fits.
3: <laughs> Dressed up like a million
0: dollar trooper, try mighty hard to look like Welcome back to Berkeley Grox, and now here's Brian with this week's guest. Brian?
3: Steven Schneider is a professor at Stanford in the Department of Biological Sciences and also at the Center for Environmental Sciences and Policy. He joins us today to talk about the science behind climate change. Dr. Schneider, thanks for being with us today.
4: Yeah, my pleasure.
3: Uh, So I guess we'll start out. You have done a lot of work in, uh, in sort of the science and environmental policy realm. Um, what is it like trying to inject science into a political debate on on issues like climate change?
4: Well, political debates have traditionally been based on this principle of balance, where if a journalist quotes a Democrat, they of course quote the Republican. Absolutely appropriate doctrine for dealing with uh, with politics. The problem with science is rarely uh, are we bipolar; rarely we have just one extreme or the other. In the problem I work on in climate change, unfortunately, in the media, you all too often on op ed pages and even in articles, you know, see somebody from, you know, a deep ecology group telling you the problem's the end of the world and somebody from some oil company or an enterprise institute telling you it's good for you. Where is good for you and end of the world, you know, are the two lowest probability cases the difficulty occurs when you apply political model of reporting or advocacy model of getting information like you get in courtrooms or in front of congress to science because in science there's multiple possibilities and they're not all equally likely so what has to be understood by the public in order to make choices and and, and, and on rational policy is the whole range of possible outcomes and how likely they are not just the extremes that make a uh, you know a good a good pair for a uh, for a battle in the in the uh, in the op-ed wars, but uh, but that perspective rather than balance of uh, of extreme opposites.
3: Okay, great. Well, with the the goal of bringing bringing the real science to the public, uh, we'll start out with um, talking a little bit about evidence and uh, and predictions. So, what I guess starting, what is the evidence for uh, climate change and global warming going on right now?
4: Yeah, as as we talked a minute ago, Brian, the the key is to separate out the parts of the science that we know very well from the parts that we have some idea about from the parts that are speculative. That's the perspective. And uh, the parts that we know very well uh, is that the world is about uh, one degree Fahrenheit warmer than it was a century ago, the surface of the world. Uh, We know uh, very well that there's 30 percent more carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. We know very well that that's a result of the industrial revolution and the agricultural revolution, clearing of land, uh, deforestation and mostly the burning of fossil fuels, coal, oil and gas. Uh, we know there's 150% more methane in the air. That, that comes from animals, uh, comes from landfills, some leaky natural gas, from coal mines, and so forth. Now, why do we care about those gases, carbon dioxide and methane? Because they're heat-trapping gases. That is, they're so-called greenhouse gases that warm the surface. We know that very well. Everything I've told you is not even remotely speculative, but completely well-established theory. Uh, so global warming is a fact, despite what you may hear from the administration or other things. Now we've got to move to the things we don't know quite so well. It's a fact that the Earth is warmer. But is it a fact that this was due to us, that is, to the increase in carbon dioxide and methane? Or could nature just have been perverse, you know, rolled snake eyes on us and given us an improbable event? That we can't be as sure of. But we're getting pretty sure that at least a good part of that warming is due to us. And we do that like in a good detective story by fingerprinting. You don't just say, well, the world is warmer than it was a century ago, therefore we did it. I mean, that's, that's circumstantial evidence. You have to say, what other evidence have you got? So we have evidence like uh, uh, the stratosphere. You know, up there where ozone is, is getting colder, but the surface is getting warmer. Well, some people, especially, you know, the Wall Street Journal asserts over and over again, oh, this is a natural accident, this warming, and the, the sun got hot. Well, of course, it's ironic the sun decided to get hot in the last you know, half of the 20th century and didn't for the last 1,000 years, but even if you bought the argument that, that the sun got hotter, uh, then it would have warmed up the stratosphere as well as the surface, but the stratosphere got colder. That's a fingerprint of human effects, of decreasing ozone and adding greenhouse gases when at the same time the surface warms. So now we have a second piece of circumstantial evidence saying that it's probably us. The other thing is our theory tells us that if we're adding this heat, then the high latitude should warm up more than the low latitudes. That's because of snow and ice there, and it makes it, you know, more sensitive. And it says that the winter and the spring should warm up more than the summer and the fall. Both of those have happened. So now we have four lines of fingerprint evidence, each one of which is circumstantial, but together makes such an overwhelming package that the vast majority of knowledgeable climate scientists have said that despite the remaining uncertainties, that it's very likely, you know, more than 90%, that humans are at least part of the story. Now, finally, what's speculative? What's speculative is, are we going to warm up by one degree? Uh, now it's uh, what, you know, just double what we are now. Or are we going to warm up by 10? Well, that's the difference between almost no impact and catastrophic impact. That's more speculative, because that involves predicting how many people there'll be in the world, what technologies we'll use, whether we have climate treaties signed or unsigned, whether the uncertainties that still remain in the science work out on the mild or the or or the uh, unpleasant side. So there's plenty of 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 uncertainty and speculation to go around, but there's also a lot we know very very well. And what frustrates those of us in science is that the stuff we know well gets mixed up with the stuff that's speculative speculative, is if it's all speculative, which it is not.
3: So, yeah, you'd say that, uh, for example, these so-called fingerprints of, of human activity causing these things are, um, I mean, I, I guess each of them has an alternate explanation, yeah, but um, taken together, they, they seem to really really make the case?
4: Yeah, that's exactly right, Brian. You, you, you understood it well, and I wish that the average senator got it as quickly as you just did. Yeah. I mean, the, the key here... Is that we are dealing in the analogy to a civil case with a vast preponderance of evidence. Now, in a civil case, in a criminal case, it's beyond a reasonable doubt. I don't even know what that means. I mean, there's a reasonable doubt, 90%, 99%. Uh, that's always interpreted by by juries. But if we use a civil analogy, where if there's more than 51% evidence, they often you know award to that person. We're looking at you know. Two thirds to ninety percent chances in each one of these circumstantial cases. You put them all together, you're looking at ninety five percent case. This is so far over the top for a circumstantial case. I mean, we buy insurance, right, for health and for a car and, and and for fire. When the probabilities that we're going to need it are, you know, one percent. So we're talking about better than coin flip odds, right, of substantial change occurring at the scale of the planet. We need insurance at the scale of the planet. That's the sticky part, because insurance at the scale of the planet means people cooperating, acting together, and not just acting in their own self-interest by dumping all their waste in the atmosphere for free, but we need a tailpipe charge for our dump, and uh, that will provide incentives for people to dump less, but that means that the people who've been doing it over all these years are going to have higher costs, and they know it, they're organized, and they happen to have the president and vice president's ears because both of those are oil company executives.
3: Okay, so we've talked about uh, the past and the evidence. Let's talk a little bit now about trying to predict the future. Uh, I think even for those who accept um, the evidence so far and uh, and believe and perhaps know a little bit of science, it may be a little bit frustrating to see all these models that are, Kind of widely divergent in their predictions, and uh, one you know might ask the question: If if we can't even predict next week's weather well, then how do we? How are we going to know what's going to happen with uh, with this stuff? Can you talk a little bit about that?
4: Yeah, that question is asked all the time. Oh, aren't you guys a joke? You know, we can't predict the weather accurately after a week or two. So how dare you talk about you know ten years from now or a hundred years from now? And I always like to have a bet with these guys. I say, okay, I'll bet you long-range forecast. Uh, I'll bet that, uh, the, that January of 2005 is going to be 15 degrees Celsius colder in the, in the northern hemisphere than July of 2005. You know, people sort of laugh at me like, oh, I'd be dumb to take that bet. I said, exactly, it's long-range forecast. How is it we can do that one accurately? But we can't accurately forecast, uh, you know, whether the weather next week is going to be good because they're completely different problems. The weather is what scientists call an initial value problem. You start out with an initial knowledge of where all the systems, the storm systems are, and then you let them evolve forward in time, and after about 10 days, you lose all skill, whereas the climate is what we call a boundary value problem. That is, you change things at the boundaries of the earth, like the amount of sun coming in between January and July, or in the case of global warming, the boundary conditions that you're changing are the amount of greenhouse gases, which changes the amount of heat trapped and then you 're predicting averages you 're not predicting the instantaneous state of the atmosphere, and there is no prohibition against doing that. And in fact, we know how to do it. The problem is how well do we know how to do it and that 's where the difficulty comes along in principle there 's no reason why we can 't make long range climate uh, projections in practice, there are complicating factors that make it um, possible to have a crystal ball in the future. But the crystal ball is partly cloudy. It's not clear. And in fact, clouds are the whole key because if you heat the earth up, we're going to evaporate more water. That's everybody agrees. You know, if you put a pan of water out in the sun and, as opposed to the shade, you know it's going to evaporate faster. So that means... <clears throat> excuse me. So that means when the earth is being heated by the extra greenhouse gases, and that's virtually certain, uh, it's going to evaporate more water. Well, when that water condenses into clouds... The clouds are bright and white, and they reflect away sunlight. If they're reflecting away sunlight, they'll cool the Earth back down. We even have a name for this. It's called a negative, you know, or a stabilizing feedback. So, of course, those people who think the problem will be minor point to that possibility. But what they forget is if you increase the evaporation, you not only make the clouds wider, you might make them taller. If they're taller, the tops go higher. Anything higher in the atmosphere is colder. Anything colder gives off less heat, therefore, They're actually trapping more heat, and they're amplifying what we call a positive feedback to change. What we are frustrated about in atmospheric science is we can't pin down to much better than a factor of three how these clouds, or what we call cloud feedback, is going to influence our projections of the future. So therefore, you still can defend mild and catastrophic outcomes for the future as possible even though they may not be the highest probability case, they can still be done, uh, you know, responsibly. You can say it could be really catastrophic or it could be really mild. And guess what? The coal industry takes the really mild and pretends it's the truth, and Greenpeace takes the other end and pretends it's the only case. And then people are confused with this political reporting model of, you know, of one extreme against the other.
3: So uh, to, to kind of bring some, some sanity to this, then, can you tell us, since, uh, since you're an expert, uh, a little bit about... I guess, what are the, the extremes and the probabilities of the extremes, and then what is perhaps a more uh, highly likely uh, outcome that we might see?
4: Well, if we're very lucky, what happens is that we don't warm up the temperature more than a couple more degrees, uh, that that gives us longer growing seasons in the high latitudes, that we're adding carbon dioxide into the atmosphere, which is a fertilizer for crops and trees. So we end up with higher crop yields and longer growing seasons, and uh, and since the climate change won't be very large, but we'll have that extra CO2 uh, on balance, we may be fine. Now, of course, what that forgets is the other side of your question, which is what about the downside? Well, if you're already living in the tropics, it's already sufficiently hot that extra heat usually reduces your capacity to grow uh, to grow um, crops. So we have the ironic situation that even at the lucky end, the rich countries in the north who might do fine uh, for small climate change, the poor countries in the south probably would be hurt. So if the rich gained 1% of their economy and the poor lost, you know, the rich got richer and the poor got poorer, even that is not a prescription for a happy world. So even the happy case has it's hooks in it. Now what happens if we warm up 5 or 10 degrees, which again I would assign a 10% chance that we could go that high, just as I'd assign a 10% chance that we could be as lucky as 1 or 2 degrees more warming. Uh in that case, you'll be taking the species of the world which now you know live in in, in uh in habitats that are increasingly being fragmented just by human cutting down of, of forests and transforming of prairies to agriculture and so forth. And not only are we squeezing them into smaller and smaller spots, but now we'd be forcing them by large climate change to have to move hundreds, if not thousands of miles. And they'd have to move across disturbed landscapes like factories, farms, freeways, and urban settlements. The probability that endangered species currently endangered would go extinct would be very high, and that many, many currently okay species would become endangered would be high. So I think we'd be looking at a pretty serious threat to nature if we had that kind of change. If we have five to ten degrees warming, we're going to raise sea levels quite a bit. Uh, you know, uh, a foot or two in the next, uh, in this century at least, and probably many, many yards uh, over the uh, over the next 500 years. That'll make coastal areas substantially in trouble, and small island states would essentially disappear. Uh, it probably will really be increasing the intensity of hurricanes, droughts, and floods. And, uh, that's a pretty nasty set of prospects that we would face. And in the tropics, where it's already hot, adding another, you know, five degrees, uh, would be, uh, quite catastrophic in a variety of ways, including just the direct heat stress on people in areas that are already at their tolerance and on plants and on animals. So, what well, we keep saying in, in the climate impacts business, is can we keep this under a few degrees can we keep carbon dioxide from doubling can we please begin to replace the inefficient victorian technologies that we use to get rich with new high technology low impacting technologies so that we can improve our odds of being on the low side of impacts rather than the high side that's basically how the community tends to react
3: well it looks like we're just about out of time i just want to thank you for uh for a, a fascinating look into the science behind uh,
4: well, all this, uh, all this political asking, debate. Well, thanks for asking, and I appreciate the uh, the opportunity to let people know that they'd better listen to the claims they hear and make sure that they're not just hearing somebody tell them that this this is the truth of what will happen. Trust the people who are talking in subjective probabilities and ranges much more than the ones who are busting and truth-telling.
3: Thanks a lot for joining us today. Thank you. With uh, Dr. Stephen Schneider from Stanford University, I'm Brian Gerkey for Berkeley Grox on KALX.
0: Well, thanks a lot, Brian, and you're listening to Berkeley Grox only here on 90.7 FM. Coming up, find out how your test bus work. so stay tuned.
2: Ever wonder how we know that sugar tastes sweet? The answer can be found in everyday science. The taste buds in our tongues help determine whether a food tastes salty, spicy, sour, or sweet. To see how, let's take a good look at a sweet taste bud. This taste bud has a receptor on top, just like all taste buds. Except this one is made up of two tiny prongs that are really close together. It's very unique. In fact, the only thing that matches it is the molecular structure of sugar. Time for lunch and to see this receptor in action. First, there's milk. Sorry, wrong molecular structure. Then ham. Nope, not a match. Aha, a chocolate chip cookie. Now, remember how we said that the structure of sugar matches the prongs on this taste bud's receptor? That's because every sugar, whether it's dextrose, fructose, or sucrose, has two hydrogen atoms that are just a smidgen apart. Sugar rolls over this taste bud, those hydrogen atoms line up with the receptor's prongs. A perfect match. So the receptor sends the news to the brain, which tells us that the chocolate chip cookie hit the spot. Just a spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down. Well, it was sweet of you to join us today. Thanks for being a part of Everyday Science. Everyday Science is part of Bayer Corporation's National Education Program, Making Science Make Sense.
0: Well, that was certainly a sweet story. And now here's the quote of the week.
1: Ah, the quote of the week.
0: And this comes from the computer security advisor to the White House. Okay. And he says something like, People deserve to be hacked if they spend more on coffee than on IT security.
1: Wow. Wow. I, you know, I spent actually no money on either one of those, so... Me neither. so <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure really how that applies to me, but...
0: Right. So I guess uh, we don't have to worry about security yeah, at all.
1: Spend money, I guess, on security rather than Starbucks.
0: And now here's the answer to last week's question of the week. The
1: last week's question of the week. Yeah, this is head Dr. Prof. Einstein with the answer to last week's question of the week. How does a refrigerator work? Well, it's very simple. It works on a principle called the cornell cycle in which the adiabatic expansion of pressure of the gases causes decreases in temperature. And this just cycles between compression and expansion. And that dissipates the heat, makes the refrigerator a little bit smaller, a little bit cooler. And then you have the refrigerator inside, and it's a little bit hot on the outside. And that's how the refrigerator works. Dude, chill out, Albert. Yeah, well, you know, it's just so exciting.
0: And for something brighter, here's this week's question of the week. How does the sun give us warmth? If you know the answer or just think you know the answer, you can email us at grox@hotmail.com. At you won't win anything, but you might just be a little warmer. And that's all for this week's edition of Berkeley Grox.
1: Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology.
0: If you'd like to contact us here at Berkeley Grox, you can email us at grox@hotmail.com. At for Berkeley Grox, I'm Franklin.
1: And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grox.net. Have a great afternoon and stay tuned for more music with your host, the Boy Wonder.